you think women are interesting and literary arts are a pretty cool thing, well, come cozy up with the fainting couch. Feminists, we got poets. We got artists. We got short story writers, musicians, memoirists, all cozied up on the fainting couch. Feminists, Get it? For you! No matter who, what, or how you identify, baby, we'd like to intelligently discuss your point of view. We're hysterical! Hello, everyone. Welcome to Fainting Couch Feminists, a podcast brought to you by... Ooh, crocody. Uh, Room Magazine and Best Suited to Witches, Bitches, and Anyone Who's Ever Been Called Hysterical. Hello! My name is Micah Lemiski, and I know this week I said we'd be doing a compilation episode, a sort of best of greatest hits countdown rah-rah, if you will. Um, That's taking me quite a while to assemble because... I've had to sift through a bunch of old episodes, which has been fun, but is taking a long time. So that's coming out next week. And so this week, I thought I'd do something I've never done before, but that I've seen other cool podcast people do, which is re-release an episode from the archives. So this episode features Mandy Len Catron and Carrie Jenkins, and it was the second episode... I ever released way back in 2017 when I was just a baby. Anyhow, I I think this episode has stood the test of time well. The only thing that sounds kind of insane to me is my introduction, which sounds very pensive or something. I don't know. The voice I was putting on sounded a little like this. I didn't know this was that until I found this. And then I thought, well, why? I don't know what this is, but maybe it's that. If this is that, then, well, that is this. And I don't know. Maybe it's because how is why and are is am. But, you know, ultimately, this is this and here is there. Where is who and how is why. So, yeah, I was definitely in those early episodes um, enacting a more polished, contemplative, sweet version of myself, which you will hear in about five seconds. But anyways, I hope you enjoy this episode. Stay tuned for our compilation episode and big news about changes being made to the podcast. Okay, bye. A few years ago, I was lying in bed with my then boyfriend and I felt the need to say something. I'd heard from friends that you should never say I love you for the first time in a relationship, after sex or after alcohol. But in this moment, I ignored these warnings and said it anyway. I love you, I said. He smiled, kissed me, said he was glad I'd told him but that he couldn't reciprocate. I said, okay. Then I asked, why? He said he didn't know what the word love meant. I said, that's okay, I understand, and I tried not to feel hurt, but I am human and so I hurt. 
I thought that if he actually did love me, then love wouldn't be an incomprehensible word because I'd have contextualized for him what love really was. Love was me, or I thought it should have been. But I'm not so sure now if this was an accurate or even a healthy way of thinking. Love is complicated, especially romantic love. One of today's guests, Carrie Jenkins, says in her book, Trying to state the nature of romantic love with precision is like trying to nail some jello to a wall made of jello using a jello nail. I think Carrie's right, but if I'm to continue this metaphor, rather clumsily I should add, I might say that we do have a framework for understanding love, a jello mold, if you will, and that is stories, in particular, the love narratives taught to us as kids and that continue exposing themselves to us, whether on TV or in books or advertisements at the mall. The problem, though, is that most of these narratives seem like clones of each other. Two people, usually of opposing genders, meet. They fall in love, they get married, they have a baby, they work, they retire, they buy a trailer for summertime and spend their winters in Mexico. Actually, this is just my parents' story. And there's nothing wrong with it. Their story is beautiful. But it isn't the only one. And that's what myself, along with guests Mandy Len Catron and Carrie Jenkins, will be discussing today. Let me tell you a bit more about them. Mandy Len Catron's 2015 article, To Fall in Love with Anyone, Do This, was one of the most popular articles published by the New York Times and went viral. Her new book, How to Fall in Love with Anyone, is a collection of essays on what it is to love, to be loved, and how we show our love to others. She is currently working on the Love Story Project, which continues her research into this subject online. She teaches English and creative writing at the University of British Columbia. Carrie Jenkins is a writer and philosopher with a focus on epistemology and metaphysics. She has worked in universities in the United States, Ireland, Australia, and currently is a professor of philosophy at the University of British Columbia. Jenkins is a nationally elected Canada Research Chair and is working towards an MFA in creative writing. She is also a member of the 21st Century Monads, a philosophy-themed musical group. Her new book, What Love Is and What It Could Be, is an exploration on the nature of romantic love. To start the episode, I had Carrie and Mandy answer some love-themed questions from our listeners, advice column style, before moving into a discussion of love in the context of language, biology, philosophy, and even hairless cats. Stay tuned. Mandy, Carrie, welcome. It's so nice to have you here. Thanks. Thank you. It's really exciting to be here. <laughs> yeah, I have to um, admit I've been having conversations with you both in my head for the past week listening to your <laughs> audiobooks. <laughs> so it's nice to have the conversation in person. Okay, well, let's dive right into these questions from friends and listeners. I'm so curious yes. thinking about people mm-hmm. asking. Okay, so our first question is from a girl who calls herself Fulfilled But Lonely. So Fulfilled But Lonely says, How do you make space in your life for someone? I have friends and family that I care about and love spending time with, 
So how do I prioritize dating, which can be an exhausting and frustrating frustrating process when I'm fulfilled in a lot of other areas? Uh, do you want to take this one? I mean, I can. If you have a good solution, like, response, then I'll bat it over to so you. There are, there's something that I just want to say okay. right off the bat, and then it doesn't really address all parts of the question, but I, I noticed the word prioritize in that mm. question. It really jumps out at me. And, you know, it makes me think about the ways that culturally, socially, romantic love and the idea of a focal romantic relationship has become prioritized. And the expectation is that it will be prioritized for everybody and that there's something lacking if you don't have that mm-hmm. and you don't prioritize that. Um, and so... I'm very interested in this kind of, in the name actually, Fulfilled, right, but Lonely. That sounds almost like a contradiction in terms, and I wonder if there's some tension between those two parts of the the name and the question. So there is obviously a sense of fulfillment, and the sense that something is missing, I'm wondering how much of that comes from social pressure to Mm -hmm. prioritize Mm -hmm. what is not there in the, the fulfilled life. Yeah, my first thought was, like, just stop dating for a while. Because I had a similar experience, which is that I was in, like, a 10-year relationship. I mean, I write about this in my book. And then I wasn't in a relationship basically for the first time in my adult life at Mm. age 30. And what I found was that I really enjoyed making all the decisions about my life all by myself and feeling like they didn't have a big impact on anyone else. Mm -hmm. And so then dating felt... I don't know, sort of like a burden. And at a certain point, I realized that I only wanted to be with someone like when I went to a wedding or needed a date for some kind of event or when I was out with all my friends and they were all in couples. But most of the time, I just didn't care that much. Like, I right. felt very close with my dog, <laughs> which I still do. Should. Yeah, but, you know, if you... So I was just writing about this earlier today for my advice column, and I was thinking about this idea of love as... Like, one way to define it is as a physiological experience. Mm. And so it's like being with people or even, like, other non-humans, like, close pets who sort of like make you feel calm and serene and stable and good that like one way to measure love is like that physiological state of like calmness and happiness that you feel with another person and or with your dog and that you can get that and that can be good like a a romantic partner doesn't have to be the source of that sort of life-sustaining affection and like good feeling but obviously there's nothing wrong with wanting that yeah right so it's a tricky balance and maybe a good way to handle it is to think about dating as something that's seasonal so it's like oh it's dating season right (laughs) and I'm just gonna do it for a while and then I'm gonna be like you know what this isn't doing it for me I'm gonna go into non-dating season really (laughs) interesting approach because I do sense in this question maybe a fear of being alone, mm-hmm. whether that's motivated by social factors mm-hmm. or not. I like the idea of seasonal dating. Like, it doesn't have to be your job to be out there hunting for a life partner all the time. Yeah. But people, if you're single, people will make you feel like that should be your job. Right. right? But you could just be like, you know what? It's not dating season. Maybe 
the right answer to how to prioritize dating depends on like why you would be prioritizing dating. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If there is a genuine sense that you want something you don't have, um, and that is a priority for you, yeah. um, then that is a very different situation from just feeling that external pressure. Or that fear of like mm-hmm. being alone. Yeah, and we can we tend to define like being alone in a way that it, yeah, you know, like this right. person isn't if you, alone. If you're not yeah. alone, right? If you have if you have a fulfilled relationship with lots of family and friends, you're not alone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it depends what the fear is, right, mm-hmm. and what the what the loneliness boils down to. I think often it's a fear of the stigma of being single because we really live in a culture that says if you're single, you must by default be unhappy. Well, I think that's so interesting. When we say being alone, we're referring specifically to not having a romantic Mm -hmm. partner, Mm -hmm. whereas actually being alone can mean so many different things. Yeah, we've pinpointed this one meaning. And it's possible to be very lonely in a romantic relationship. Yeah, Yeah. totally. It's not necessarily solved by finding a partner. (laughs) If I were to have like a conversation with with this questioner, I would want to ask more about what the loneliness part is, because that sounds like the thing that needs addressing. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, let's move on to our next question. I've got three questions. So this is question two from Lost Lover. And Lost Lover asks, if you're in a relationship with a person you truly love, but can't see that person in your future for whatever reason, how do you move on? How do you let go of love? I basically wrote a whole book trying to answer this question for myself because this was like the exact position that I found myself in when I decided to start researching romantic love Mm. because I was like there aren't any love stories that are like here's how to handle the situation where you love someone but like maybe you don't really want to spend your life with them like it's such a weird there aren't a lot of narratives in our culture about how to do that Mm -hmm. what's the answer to that my answers are not going to be very satisfying like my approach was okay I'm in this relationship. I don't think I want to stay in it, but I don't know that I want to leave it. I'm going to wait. And I'm like, eventually I will figure out what to do. What it really came down to for me was this investment in my own sensibility. Like I, I needed to trust myself to develop a sensibility that would eventually arrive at like an approach, which I feel like is an unfulfilling answer. But ultimately that was... That is now how I make lots of decisions. Was there a moment, so you were in a, a long-term relationship for 10 years. Towards the end of that, was there a catalyst or something specific that you went, okay, now it's time? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> there was a moment. And you know what it was? He gaslighted me. And this was before I knew what that word was. And I was so delighted when I found that word because right. I thought, oh, this is my experience. But we had just gotten into an argument and it, at the time it seemed so small. Mm-hmm. But I was like, you offered to spend the day with me yesterday mm-hmm. and we got into a fight about it. And he was like, no, I never offered to do that. Mm-hmm. And I just thought, oh, I don't want to be with this person. Wow. You know, and yeah. it was just it was just a thing that I thought, no, this is no good. Those little things, hey. Mm-hmm. I remember I dated someone once who <laughs> didn't find the movie Bridesmaids funny. And there was just something, something that felt fundamentally wrong to me about that. And I thought, really? 
there's a big disconnect here somehow. <laughs> Anyhow, that's sort of the side. But uh, Carrie, do you have, yeah, do you have any you advice I'm on letting go? It's really a question of like what that means. Again, I'm you know I'm sorry to do like philosopher thing. <laughs> what do you mean by that? It does mean it does depend what what letting go is here. So we tend to have this kind of along with this idea that romantic relationships are the goal for everybody. Mm-hmm. We also have this kind of all or nothing conception. Whether you're like you're in mm-hmm. and then you're wholly fully committed, and it's got to be for life, or you're out and then it's a failed quotes failed right. relationship. Um, and something that's ended is not necessarily a failure. And I think this is one of the really important mm-hmm. ways that we can challenge that, you know, the narrative or the script that a lot of people seem to reinforce without even kind of realizing yeah. that they're doing it. <laughs> you know, I say this as someone who, like, I still love everyone I've been in relationships with. And I don't think that that's very unusual. I know, mm-hmm. you know, sometimes things end very badly and then you might not feel that way. But yeah. if if things are ending for reasons having to do with for example just the fact that you can't be together for practical reasons or you can't be together because it doesn't work you know it's not it's not to do with the lack of love it's to do with something else then there's no there's no need to think of that as breaking all ties and all emotional investments and all connections with that person Mm -hmm. Um, and so letting them go doesn't mean you can never speak to this person again there are lots of questions lots of levels between spousal lifelong (laughs) monogamous relationship on one hand and then never speaking to the person on the other hand so the question might be then you know where along that spectrum can you do and would you like to do Mm -hmm. and you know you may want to ease the transition by seeing someone less often for example so it's not really painful and difficult right, okay. to end the part of the relationship that you are ending but there's love's not really an all or nothing yeah. matter I, I like that maybe it's, it's got levels and complexities mm-hmm. customizable I, I, that's the word I like to use right oh <laughs> yeah I like that customizable I think we don't think about love in a customizable sense Someone once called it a Build-A-Bear workshop. Oh, Metaphors now. Yeah, yeah. so maybe for Lost Lover, it's a question of, so this person isn't the be-all, end-all, but what level do you want that person to know? Yeah, Yeah. right. Mm -hmm. Could they be a really good friend that you have a lot of shared history with? That's a very important person in your life still. Mm -hmm. Um, For sure. And that's not someone who's, the love is not then lost, it's turned into something else. I like that it's turned into something else. Okay, let's do our third and final question. This is from Hopeful Pessimist. So I kind of like that contradictory (laughs) name. Uh, And she says, I'd like to get your take on divorce or marriage for that matter. It seems like the general consensus these days is that the younger generations are throwing in the towel too quickly and don't understand that marriage is work. I guess I sometimes wonder whether we're realizing that a lifelong commitment to one person isn't realistic. What are your thoughts? And do you think increased divorce rates are inherently bad? I don't think increased divorce rates are inherently bad. And one yeah, the uh, divorce so, rate <laughs> is not increasing. Right. It's actually it's decreasing. Is it really? Yeah. yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. So yeah. This is a popular misconception. I mean, mm-hmm. divorce rates are um, perhaps 
they, they, they it might, some people think that they are too high still, but the fact is they have been higher, right? That are, They've been going down since the 1980s, mid-1980s, really? I think. Oh, mm-hmm. okay. I was talking to, so we are, uh, we have a friend called Marina Anshade, who's a, an economist of sex and love, and she looks at things like the statistics and the data, um, and she was telling me the other day, um, actually, the, there's a correlation between the divorce rate starting to fall and people having more options for how to find someone in the first place. So you mm-hmm. notice with like the advent mm-hmm. of social networking, okay. um, which opens up a lot more possibilities for how to find someone who's like you know not just someone from your small town or your graduating class or whatever, yeah. but a lot yeah. more social opportunities. Um, once that starts to kick in, the divorce rate starts to fall. So, oh. um, so yeah, that's that's a that's one thing. But also, no, I don't think. I don't think high divorce rates are necessarily a sign that something has gone wrong. Um, right. And one way to understand that is to understand... Um, I mean, it's related to the to the previous point I was making about an ended relationship not being a, necessarily a failed one. Um, so that's one thing. But also the fact that it's not good to trap people in situations that they need to leave. Right. Um, and so understanding that divorce can be a very positive thing because... Some marriages are very negative things. Uh, that's, a, I think, a really key like piece of this puzzle. Mm-hmm. Um, and to conflate marriage with love is part of the problem here. So we think divorce rates rising means people aren't giving their love relationships enough of a, a fair crack of the whip. But sometimes divorce rates rise because women are able to escape domestic violence. Uh, right, And that is good. Right. It is good when yeah. people can escape marriages or relationships or whatever situations that they need to escape but the writer's intuition that marriage has changed is seems to be fairly well evidenced in a lot of research Mm um eli finkel is a psychologist whose book just came out called the all or nothing marriage and he talks about how our expectations for marriage have slowly over the past like 150 years which is sort of the the timeline over which we first yoked love to marriage and said these two things are synonymous. Um, has slowly climbed Maslow's hierarchy of needs. So initially we were like, okay, marriage provides us with belonging and family and a sense of community. But increasingly, what we want from our spouse has crept up till now we're at the top and we what we want is like self-actualization. So we want a lifelong romantic partner who's going to help us become the best version of ourselves and also help us like very equitably and fairly manage our homes and enjoy our work and be a great co-parent and like have excellent sex and like you know it's just not it's really hard I guess is a better way to put it for one person to do all of those things So there is a sense that our expectations of marriage are probably higher than they were. And so it's really difficult for us to feel like marriages are meeting all of our expectations. Mm. Well, what I, this reminds me actually of the second piece of yours in the New York Times, which you discuss your relationship contract, which is, I guess, a way to make sure or at least come close to making sure that those needs in the relationship are being covered? Yeah, I mean, I think for me, because I was in a relationship for a long time where I 
didn't feel comfortable saying, here's what I want from mm-hmm. this relationship. And I also like didn't know what my partner wanted. And the only way we would find out is we would have fights about it. And then I'd be like, oh, you were expecting this. And I didn't right. know. And so <laughs> when my partner Mark and I moved in together, we both had a lot of apprehension about it. And we both kind of were nervous about all the potential difficulties we could encounter. And so this idea of a relationship contract was really attractive to us. Mm -hmm. And it definitely does not mean that we avoid conflict. And it doesn't mean that we always (laughs) sort of meet the other's expectations all the time. It just means that we have an opportunity to voice our expectations. It also accounts for stuff like all the research on, like, gender divisions of labor Mm, mm -hmm. in the household and so like one of the things is like a small thing but I was like when we get both get invited to an event I don't want to be the one who has to reply to the evite for both of us because this is like (laughs) just a small bit of work that almost always women do it's like the social planning aspect of the relationship so I put that in the contract and his behavior on that front has changed and it's really nice oh that's great (laughs) but I was like there was a space to bring it up that didn't feel like an argument yeah that's very cool yeah I think going into you know when you're in a relationship sometimes you feel like if your partner you know you might think, oh, if you really care about me, you'll just know oh, what I want. Totally. And I think that happens all the time. Right? <laughs> yeah, the, 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 the quote-unquote right person, like, gets all yeah. your needs. They just intuit them. Mm-hmm. And, like, that's a, such a, a kind of wild fantasy. Yeah. yeah and it it's is. really dangerous, too, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not... It's It also taps into this idea that everybody is aiming at the same goals in the relationship, Um, which we're kind of encouraged to think that way as if there's just one sort of narrative one sort of script and Mm -hmm. actually it's not really like that at all you know what what one person would consider to be cheating for example Mm. it's really important to be clear on that because yeah what does this look like what does it look Mm -hmm. like for you what would you consider to be breaking the agreement that I've made to you if you never have explicitly made any kind of agreement then when somebody does break the implicit or tacit agreement, um, you know, they may be doing it because they had no idea that that was what you thought they had agreed to do. Right. Yeah, and I think we come with these ideas, like asking for what you want or laying down some ground rules, um, you know, even in the form of a contract, we think that's totally unromantic and it's, you know, kind of mundane and that strips us of whimsy or whatever, but... And, I mean, this is one of the ways in which the ideology of romanticness is at work behind all of the scenes mm. here, um, and it kind of guides us towards things that can be really actually um, devastating, potentially, to love, loving relationships, mm-hmm. including this thought that you mustn't talk about things yeah. that are really important, right? That's right. Um, if you shine a bright light on your feelings, they're going to go away. Like, they're going right. to vanish. Right. Which is, and like, I, such a strange <laughs> assumption. If you thought that, wouldn't you be a little bit worried about like, yeah. those feelings, how real they really are? Yeah, you know? yeah. exactly. I want the kind that you can shine a light on and mm-hmm. they're still there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Well, I think this definitely gives our our listeners and our questioners some stuff to think about and hopefully some helpful advice um and since we are 
a literature themed podcast, I thought we could move on to talking a bit about the language we use to describe love. Mandy, I know this is an area of interest for you and, and Carrie as well about how the vocabulary surrounding love is actually very similar to what we use to describe illness or disease. Yeah. <laughs> um, do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, it's like a lot of the metaphors, if you look at the, the metaphors we used to talk about love, it's like heartbroken or lovesick or crushed or smitten. Like, smitten is my favorite because it's mm. so biblical. Yeah. Like, it's like smiting is like the action of an angry god like toward <laughs> his people and so it's it's fascinating to me that like that we want love somehow to feel like that to feel right. like this sort of punishment Crazy. so so many of the metaphors use like the but it's it's not possible to intervene in and again that really positions us not only as like super passive but it also implies that like suffering in love is legitimate that it's warranted that it's a good way to feel and I certainly like subscribed to these ideas when I was younger and you know so so much of like going around talking about my book I feel like it's just me outing myself I was like such a dummy when I was (laughs) younger but it's true I was like you know my partner and I fought all the time and I thought this is because we really love each other Mm. which I now look back and I'm like wow like it's it's wild to me that that I can absorb this idea from the culture like I'm not stupid Mm -hmm. um and yet so much of our language literally controls how we think like an article I really love is called metaphors we live by by Mark Johnson and George Lakoff and essentially they argue that language structures thought like it isn't simply that it reflects thought it's that it also structures thought and so when we're using this kind of language to talk about love and it's really hard not to use it because it's such a part of our culture but we're actually sort of training ourselves to assume that love should feel these ways Mm -hmm. and then if it doesn't feel this way then it isn't love and I feel very exasperated in my feelings about this but I just taught this article to my students last week and they were like "Mm, I don't know like I don't know if I want love to like I I don't know if I want to change how I feel about love right and I was like why not (laughs) why not come up with some better metaphors I think that sometimes like one has to reach a point where one realizes that change is needed Um, and sometimes that is experiential which is not to say it necessarily goes with being older or younger but it can be a factor of what you have personally been through Mm. Um, and so the sort of glamorization of romantic suffering and even this idea that it should be intensely painful um, it's one thing to sort of have that as a theoretical image of love it's another thing to have come out of the other side of it and be asking yourself do I want that again or do I want to change my ideas of love so and I think that might be part of it some for some people the the glamour comes from and not having to live through the underside of it right, right. The, the really kind of dark side of it which is which is there and until you it's 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 not unlike the way that other very actually devastating things can appear glamorous if they're presented in the right way like depression or you know very mm-hmm, very right. potential things that are actually horrible and devastating or addiction even right if you watch certain kinds of movies and 
TV representations of those things. They can look, you know, they can be glamorized, they can be made to look dramatic and beautiful and all of these other, which of course they can can yeah. be, but they have this very, very dark component as well. And um, so I think that might be part of why um, a lot of the work being done, as I see it now, uh, on how to change love and how to make love healthier and avoid some of these problematic uses of language um, is being done by, a lot of it I notice is being done by women, and it's being done by women who have been in relationships um, and are processing those experiences and are now wondering what's next and how could it be different. Well, even I'm thinking now, there's so many song lyrics now Mm -hmm. that equate um, a person with a drug or like, I'm addicted to you. Like how many Mm -hmm. times has that line been used in a song? Mm -hmm. Um, And I, I wonder though, is there a biological component to how we would equate those feelings? Like wanting to get this hit of dopamine from some source? I know Carrie, that's an area of interest for you. It is, yeah. And I mean, there are uh, biological similarities and certainly, you know, some of the work that's being done to understand the biology of love, the biochemistry of love in the brain and in the body um, Mm -hmm. is pointing to ways in which it can look very similar, especially um, intense new love in the brain can look very similar to um, chemical addictions and withdrawing it can lead physiologically to withdrawal symptoms just in this very similar way Um, it is fascinating and it makes sense you know we don't we don't behave the ways that we do when suffering from the the loss of intense love for no reason right there is a uh, an evolved mechanism that is operating there and it's in us it's in our brains and it's in our bodies um and it's 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 there because it is good for us to cooperate right socially that is very successful as an evolutionary strategy so we're very strongly rewarded right biochemically rewarded for doing it Um, and the loss of it is very damaging feels very painful to us just like damaging your body feels very painful right to try to make sure you don't do that again Mm -hmm. um and so that this is this is real and part of part of what my work is trying to do is to accommodate that biological reality without slipping over into dangerous kinds of biological determinism um, that tell us things like so you can't change it or so there's nothing you can do about it or so that excuses violent murders committed in the name of love or anything of that kind of nature where the biology becomes a moralized excuse for things right Um, so the the real trick is (laughs) how to accommodate and understand ourselves as animals as human biological Mm -hmm. animals organisms without letting that be an excuse for things that it should not be an excuse for women are not biologically incapable of being the breadwinners in a romantic relationship Mm -hmm. they are not uh, men are not biologically incapable of vacuuming, right? This isn't. Yeah. Th- that's not where that comes from. <laughs> that comes from somewhere else. <laughs> and so, right. separating yeah. out. Yes, we we can see from scanning the brain that there are similarities to addiction. No, we cannot see by scanning the brain that there's some sort of biological reason why men can't do the vacuuming, right? So the key thing for me is seeing how biology and culture fit together and the words and the language that we're using are very very influential in the second half of that on the social cultural side language is a potential 
site of intervention in mm, misleading oh, okay. narratives about the biology. Right. Um, it's also a potential site of amplification of those misleading narratives, yeah. right? So we can yeah. keep telling the same story or recycling song lyrics that do exactly this, you know, crazy in love, crazy little thing called love, right? We can just right. keep going with that. Right. Love is craziness. Mental illness equals love, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. That's a really passive thing. It's something that happens mm -hmm. to us. We right? don't... You um, fall off a cliff. We fall off a cliff. <laughs> yeah. We're not choosing. Mm -hmm. um, do you have... What's your ideal... I, I guess have one. substitute method. Yeah. <laughs> I just, I just started selling this one. Okay, <laughs> oh, I'm going to the world. what yours is because mine isn't original. I've stolen oh, okay. it from someone else. Um, yeah. mine is mine is a borrowing from another area. Um, so I am talking now about love crafting, um, mm. and it comes from job crafting, which is something that people do when they take their job as it's defined by their whatever their job title and their working descriptions and they customize that and they say well I'm actually really good at this part so I'm going to do more of that um, or I think this is an important feature of what I can do in my job so I'm going to do more of that less of this thing that I can't really do so well they're fitting it to what is meaningful to them and also what they're good at and right. so it's job crafting and it turns out to be related to you know success in in your professional life in in a very interesting way it's, it's a creative activity even though you do it within constraints right? I like the idea of love as a creative activity right yeah. so I was, that sounds great you know what love <laughs> so so you've got this kind of job description for a partner um, and society kind of hands it to you right society right. thinks it's the boss of you it hands you a job description but you don't have to accept that wholesale right we can mm -hmm. still do some love crafting which means thinking about the parameters of that job description of a partner and which which of those we want to keep and which ones we want to alter what are our strengths um, and what's actually meaningful to us it comes back to this why are you in a relationship in the first place right. what are you trying to achieve together and individually um, and answering those questions is a way to craft love um, cool. and to understand it as, yes, a creative practice, something that is never finished, right? You know, mm -hmm. it's not like a happy ever after story where you just, you get that, the last page is, and they got married. <laughs> right. That's, you know, somewhere near the beginning, maybe, or maybe that page is not in your book, right? So you, you, you're writing your own story, your own narrative, and it doesn't have to conform to all of the parameters. How about you, Mandy? It's your metaphor. The one that I used is really similar, and it's from that article I mentioned, Metaphors We Live By. So they want to see if they can construct a new metaphor that feels coherent. And the one they come up with is love is a collaborative work of art. Oh, wow. So it's not that different. They were my other yeah. source of inspiration. Yeah, it's so <laughs> good because it's, like, it's aesthetic. <laughs> it still has beauty. But also, it's like you have to communicate with another person. It's something you're making together. It's creative. Right. And I think that's really a nice one. We have that one written into our relationship contract. That'd be... I, I kind of like that as a phrase. Like, so-and-so and I are, are collaborating in love. On a work of art. <laughs> yeah. And what I really like about the collaborative work of art is that it can describe lots of different kinds of relationships. Yeah. Like, it can be... You can have, like, a short hot fling and you can right. be like we made something like short and <laughs> beautiful and erotic and like that was great yeah and then you can do something but that that they're all like hey we're just making this together and it's valuable that's it's not like epic that. is the only option mm -hmm. right <laughs> yeah. yeah short form is yeah. <laughs> true yeah. oh that's great and i know carrie you talk about 
in your book how this is just I think in the in the preface actually you mentioned how valuable naming things can be in the world of love and you were talking specifically about polyamory mm-hmm. how that term has I think sort of bloomed sort of in the night was it the 90s mm-hmm. and now has become a bit more well known and so language is important in culturally recognizing different forms of love it is and it's always it's always a little bit like a double-edged sword um and so my i i've started thinking about labels a lot recently and the labels that we attach to to love in its various forms and yeah polyamory you know it's one that it it matters to me i identify as polyamorous myself and i have two current romantic relationships that are very central in my life and it is important to have the language to express that without using you know words that import negative judgments which Mm. used to be all that I would have had like adulterous or you know um, so words that would imply that you were committing some sort of sin or that you were cheating on somebody for a long time I did not know the word polyamory so I didn't know that there was a less ethically neutral option for describing being in simultaneous romantic relationships right Um, when did you learn that word polyamory i think i must have been about 30 wow yeah but um when i learned it it was uh you know it was a bit of a revelation and of course it came along with learning lots of other things too about Mm -hmm. the possibilities um but i i was someone who had like that had always seemed like an impossible fantasy to me to be in relationship with more than one person at the same time I thought that would be amazing but of course you can't it's wrong right it feels illicit somehow right right it's not allowed because of course you know again like Mandy I I wasn't stupid but that was just all I had ever been told no one had ever told me that this is this is an option for you or for anyone and I had never seen it represented in media I had never read Mm -hmm. stories that showed this as a possible way to love. So I didn't know. I didn't know. And, and I didn't have a label to identify by. Um, so, so then, you know, I, I was really happy to, to, to sort of move into identifying with that label. But like I say, it's always, it's always a little bit double-edged in that as the word polyamory gets a little bit um, wider acceptance, it also becomes available to misuse and all mm, kinds of right. um, so it gets slapped onto situations that I would say it did not apply to because they were you know actually people behaving pretty pretty poorly and once that's happening the label starts to acquire some of that negative baggage right, right. and so or situations where somebody might be romantically involved with people without there being communication for about example. it right yeah okay um, where that has not been agreed upon right? yeah so people right. who are who are cheating um, mm-hmm. and just using polyamory as an excuse right this right. is um kind of thing that happens um or, or the other thing that's very common is this kind of hypersexualization of polyamory and this idea that it's people who want to have an orgy every second mm. evening right. um, and that's why they do it so any of this kind of negative baggage once it gets attached the identification then becomes correspondingly less positive (laughs) because now you go out in the world and say you're polyamorous and people look at you with this oh so you have an orgy every second (laughs) evening (laughs) (laughs) oh no no you have to sort of explain what you mean by the word yeah everybody i guess depending on their circumstances and what media and people they've been exposed to will have a different interpretation exactly Exactly. Um, and it's it's up for 
grabs, you know, yeah. nobody owns the words. Right. It's, it's very much in flux. Like, yeah. all languages in flux all the time, but we notice it more with words that are very obviously undergoing this sort right. of moral shifting. Mm-hmm. I watched a section on ABC Nightline that did a piece on you, and I think the topic was polyamory, and there's a scene where you're sitting at a table in a bar with your boyfriend and they go, oh, and yes, that's a wedding ring on her finger. Like, there's this sort of language of shock surrounding it all. And I'm like, (laughs) you know what? I think the people producing that show or trying to showcase something, you know, that may be enlightening to people, but why are they clouding it with this language of you won't believe this and how shocking, you know? So, I mean, part of it is... They're trying to make it sound exciting because they have to get viewers. They're producing content. They have to make it exciting content. And, you know, there's always this, so there's this constant trade-off. And it's, it's actually like it's a, it's a minefield that you walk when you go out into the, you know, into the public eye as a polyamorous, especially as a polyamorous woman, um, between being sensationalized and being presented as this kind of like, oh, you you won't believe what this person does, you know, and and knowing that in some cases that is the only way you will reach people, Mm -hmm. right? So ABC Nightline is not going to run a segment where I just read from my book for five minutes. Right, exactly. That's not going to happen. So there are a lot of people who I might be able to reach if I'm okay with that introduction. Um, And so, you know, one's constantly trying to trade how many people can I reach, who who might need to hear what I'm going to say in the two minutes where I am actually able to talk about my yeah. work after we've done the setting. And when I think about that question, I realize then my, you know, me in my living room aged 12, if I'd seen me aged 30s <laughs> right now doing <laughs> <laughs> that segment, um, that could have made a lot of difference to her right. life. And so, right. you know, I, I try to kind of balance these things. I wonder, something I'm really interested in talking about because I think our culture is fascinated by the idea of the one or the soulmate. And this was one of my favorite parts of your book, Mandy, where you say that you decided that you could be happy with a number of people on on this earth, I suppose. But then the question <laughs> oh, the comes... seven and a half. Yeah, there's, oh, probably, there's a handful. Um, but how do you choose? Yeah. I think that's like... That's so fascinating to me. Like, even in areas of life outside of love, you know, you talk about, like, careers or even, like, where you're going to get dinner. If you don't have parameters, all of a sudden things become really overwhelming. So then how do you choose? How do you choose in love? Yeah, it's a really good question. You know, it's so funny. It's like my book is called How to Fall in Love with Anyone. Mm. And I've done a lot of interviews where people are like, anyone? Like, <laughs> are you sure that's a good idea? <laughs> and I'm like, that's not what I'm saying. <laughs> um, I think that choosing is actually really important. And I think it's important to acknowledge that we have choice. And while there are sort of biological things going on in our bodies, there are hormones and pheromones and who we don't necessarily have a lot of say over all of our feelings all the time. Yeah. But we do have a lot of say over who we spend our days with. And so I think it's useful to think like, who do I want to spend my days with? Not like who makes me like who is 
super hot, although that's a perfectly legitimate (laughs) question, or what kind of person do I want to be? So I think so often we think about finding a partner in terms of what it means for our own personal status. And it's not surprising to me that we do this. I mean, so many narratives suggest, especially for women, that like love is a means of social ascension. Like it's a way of being chosen by the right person is how you kind of move through the social classes and you attain wealth or status or whatever. And even though we're like, well, that's just like a fairy tale. Like that's Mm -hmm. the plot of Cinderella. It's also like the idea that we have in so many of the narratives that we get in our culture. You know, there's always like the cool guy who notices like the dorky girl and takes off her glasses one day. Oh my God, you're actually pretty. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. And so I think, you know, how do you choose? Like, A lot of the research suggests that, like, things like attractiveness doesn't make that big of a difference for relationship satisfaction, but personality does. And I think a nice way of thinking about it is, like, well, okay, what do I want, number one? Like, do I want a long-term, committed, marriage-minded relationship? If so, that's fine, but that's not the only option. Mm -hmm. If that is what you want, then, like, what's going to be the kind of person who's going to be good at that? And really, the kind of person who's going to be good at that, a lot of the research suggests, is like someone who's kind and generous. And I think these things are qualities that are super undervalued in our culture, and especially when we're thinking about romantic partners. But they go a really long way, and there's tons of research that suggests they do go a long way. If you just want like a hot fling, which is also an okay thing to want, like pick someone who's hot that you really want to have sex with. <laughs> like, that's fine, right. you know? And probably won't murder you, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Don't need to be super kind, although, you know, that's great. But yeah. <laughs> but like I minimal think, standards. I think it's, like, acknowledging that we have real choice and then thinking, like, okay, well, what are my objectives here? And then figuring out once you know what your objectives are, like, what kind of person is going to meet those objectives? And if it is a long-term relationship, a decent human being is a really nice person to spend your life with. Yeah. <laughs> how about for you, Carrie? What? How do you choose? One of the features of the kind of relationship structure that I've ended up in that I really like is that it doesn't shut down future possibilities for new relationships. Right. Um, this is part of why I always felt like this was an fan- impossible fantasy situation for me. Um, I have a stable spousal relationship. I share a home with my husband. We have a dog and a beautiful hairless sphinx cat who is just a magical creature. And we do laundry and, you know, all of that stuff. And I have a boyfriend as well. And if I met someone else, you know, it's not off the cards that Mm -hmm. I could be with someone else. So in that sense, I don't have to choose, right? Right. I don't have to choose... Uh, uh, the one mm-hmm. not to choose the one yeah but of course i have still made a lot of choices for example to live with my husband i've made a choice that that is going to be my domestic unit right um, and so really what happens is that you splinter one choice into many 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 individual choices and then 
it doesn't make any of them easy. Right. <laughs> um, but it does mean, and I mean, really any relationship structure is just is like this. It's just that mine happens to throw it into greater relief. Um, each one of those individual choices then becomes what Mandy is saying, right? What do I want with this person? What do I want with this other person? What do they want with me? Um, you know, and, and trying to coordinate and, and sort of answer all of those questions is, is very much like solving a huge jigsaw puzzle. But right. One with 50,000 pieces, not like a two-piece soulmate yeah. connection. Right? Collaborative art project. Collaborative art <laughs> yeah. project, right? right. The, the, a network of interlocking love relationships, which when you consider that everybody has people in their lives, this whether it's family or say, friends, we're all doing we this all the time. interlocking yeah. love relationships, right. right? It's just that, you know, we kind of have this idea that somehow the romantic one should come first and mm-hmm. should be the only romantic one. Really, that's not how life works. It's not how people work, right? Yeah. Sometimes your family demands your attention more than your spousal relationship does mm-hmm. and you go there because that's where you're needed and that's where you are, you know? It's good for us to be more aware of the fact that we have those choices. Right. I like what you yeah. say about be, yeah, being aware of our choices and our options in love. I know, you know, we kind of grow up with this ingrained idea and Kara, you mentioned this in your book um, about love as typically a monogamous hetero type of deal, um, which is enforced so early from the kissing rhyme, mm-hmm. which is so and so and so and so sitting in a tree, K A S S I N G. Usually boy plus yeah. girl. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, love, marriage, baby in the baby carriage, mm-hmm. like that is the preordained narrative. And it's so early in life. So early. People yeah. are learning this when they're three years old. Right. Yeah. <laughs> How crazy. are you going to get that narrative back out again? <laughs> And that's where we, like, that's when we start watching, reading fairy tales and watching Disney movies and Mm -hmm. everything is reinforcing Mm -hmm. those narratives all the time. Right. I guess then to sort of wrap up our discussion, I'd like to ask you both, what can we do today to broaden our perspective of love and try to open our own minds but also other people's minds into the choices and the options that we have what can we do kind of immediately do you think i think immediately we can consume better narratives of love Mm. and we can produce better narratives of love so like anything that widens that script anything that questions that norm you know it can be like oh queer relationships are legitimate too you know it can be a love story about two people of the same sex but it can also be something as small as like a love story that doesn't last till the end of the story but is still meaningful right like Mm -hmm. there's so many ways that love can be a part of our lives and I think what happens is that we have this sort of normative version of love this love marriage baby carriage script and when we are told from the earliest days of our lives that this is the best and ideal way to practice love what happens is if we veer off of that script at any point like even if you're just single for a while Mm -hmm. you're off script right so it's like oh I'm doing love wrong and I think we feel a lot of stress we feel a lot of anxiety we have a lot of doubt and the easiest solution and it's not that easy but the easiest solution is to expose yourself to more ways of practicing love right and I think that really means like actively seeking out more diverse narratives and i think the word active is 
really key. I think if you just sit there and let the world wash over you, it's going to tell you the same thing. You're going to get the same story (laughs) over and over again. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. That's boring. <laughs> it is. It's so boring. It's boring. Mm-hmm. It's boring. How about you, Carrie? Do you have any tips for how we can expand? So, I mean, it, it's going to depend who we are right. a, a little bit because I think there's there's a, a positional element to this. And mm. I say that as someone who um, is very aware of the kinds of privilege that I have that enable me to, say, write a book about being polyamorous and not lose my job and not lose my right. family and not lose all of my friends or, you know so it's mm-hmm. you know um I think people who people for whom it is an option to be more honest about their own stories that is a way of expanding narratives but that is a costly thing potentially more for some people than for others and so it's not necessarily something that I would recommend to everybody and that's why it kind of depends on who the we are right but I mean whether or not you're going to talk about it with other people I think being reflective at least to oneself and being aware of what the choices are that one has in fact made and the fact that other choices are and were possible um, is a key thing and I think a lot of people have a, a sense of being trapped and that nothing else is possible for them which you know Mandy's cure is, is one of the ways out of that feeling that nothing else mm-hmm. is possible that can be a very big turning point for a lot of people. I know it was it was for me, um, mm-hmm. you know, when I kind of realized other things are possible. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It doesn't matter where you go from there. It's just yeah. knowing that and you are looking at those forking practice paths. these other options. It's just like I don't know. There, I think it it makes space for lots of practices of love and like I have a, a relationship that looks fairly conventional. Mm-hmm. I think, and you know, we've made a certain choices to have this fairly conventional relationship and I feel more secure knowing that like right, that's something right. I've decided that's to do cool. I like that it's not an accident nice. yeah. right. it's what you wanted that, mm-hmm. it's not because someone else told you mm-hmm. that's yeah. really personally satisfying right yeah. sure. I was going to add to something people could do to broaden their perspective of love is read both of your books <laughs> yeah <laughs> I'm gonna complain about that one yeah <laughs> yes no they're they're amazing I have them they're sitting right here Mandy, How to Fall in Love with Anyone, and Carrie, What Love Is and What It Could Be, both fantastic. And I love that you both, in the audiobook versions, you both narrate them. I think that's fantastic. <laughs> I, I really wanted to to have it be done in my own voice. Yeah. yeah. I think it mattered Yeah, too. my publishers wanted to have an actor do it. And really? I, like, I think I should do it. Good. Because <laughs> no, I love audiobooks, and I yes. like listening to books. Like, I'm listening to Sherman Alexie's Oh. memoir right now you don't have to say you love me and if anyone else read it mm-hmm. it would just be right. mm-hmm. so much less mm-hmm. good and it's fantastic it feels so connected with authors when I hear mm-hmm. them do their own yeah. book it's true that's why I feel like I knew you before <laughs> today um, well thank you so much uh, Mandy and Carrie for chatting with me today this is excellent and Thank you. Yeah, this is so really fun. Great. Okay. Well, we will sign off for now from Fainting Couch Feminists. Um, fun little ditties I was putting in there. Um, I hope you enjoyed that re-release of my love-themed episode with Mandy Linkatron and Carrie Jenkins. Thank you both again um, for your time those wonderful two years ago. Um, stay tuned. As I said, next week 
I am releasing a compilation episode and it's got some of my favorite moments from episodes past. I thought it would be a fun way to wrap the show. And then the week after that, I'm going to explain to you what the big news, the big new concept, the big new show is going to be. So I hope you will tune in for that. Thanks again to Room Magazine for all your support. You can follow me on Twitter at Michael Lemisky, trying to become famous. Uh, shameless plug. Okay, bye. Ooh, we've got room. Get it? For you. No matter who, what, or how you identify, baby, we'd like to intelligently discuss your point of view.